0: I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio.
2: Hey, welcome back to Magnifico Radio, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. This is our third season on the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kate Black. Each week, I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders at the forefront of sustainability to discuss their journeys and motivation. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com, and that's Magnifeco.com, and my book, also called Magnifico, Your Head-to-Toe Guide to Ethical Fashion and Non-Toxic Beauty. The fashion industry needs several things, but today's guest thinks two would drastically shift the paradigm. Firstly, to promote responsible consumption, and secondly, to decommoditize fashion by shifting the dynamics of supply chains. Kavita Parmar is the CEO and co founder of the IOU project, born from the need to empower both the artisan and the consumer. The IOU project uses transparency, traceability, and the social web to create a more empowered supply chain that they call the prosperity chain. The creation of their own brand and e-commerce platform brings to life this new idea and drives significantly more money into the producers' hands. The IOU project offers unique, beautifully crafted pieces at the same price point as popular, mass-produced, low-quality fashion. Their completely traceable supply chain tells you the entire story of your product, decommoditizing it by bringing it back to the emotional link. The platform they've built will serve as a new industry standard, as they will white-label it to major apparel companies on Earth. Welcome Kavita. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. How are you?
3: Very good. Thank you. Here in wonderful Spain with beautiful weather. So no complaints.
2: Oh my gosh. Well, the weather's pretty nice here too in Brooklyn. So that's quite a mouthful and quite a mission. Can you... When and why did you start this game-changing brand?
3: Well, the truth is it all comes out of really my personal frustration with the business that I absolutely love. I was lucky enough at a very young age to fall in love with what I did, which was to encounter fashion and say, this is really what I want to do for the rest of my life, and be really happy about it. Um, Go down to year 2008, and things are going quite well for me. I was uh, running my own business with two brands selling internationally through my atelier in Madrid, and here comes a global economy crash, and it was dramatic for, for most of us who didn't even actually understand what was going on. I mean, I was definitely not financially literate enough to understand what Lehman Brothers or what impact that would have, but it was dramatic what happened, especially in our industry, in our business, which was affordable luxury. That got wiped out literally within a year and a half. I mean, I had over seventy clients, small independent boutiques uh, that went out of business uh, within a year. So it was it was so dramatic. A lot of my friends, because everyone started to talk about the future being low cost, the future being a uh, fast fashion, and that I should get on that boat as well. And, considering my background, my family's from India, that's what you know I should concentrate on. And that's kind of my moment of truth where I thought, well, really, is that how I envision the future? Really, is that what I want to spend the rest of my life doing? And, and how would I fight for something that I was in love with, which is to make beautiful clothes that would last for a lifetime and hopefully be um, inherited by someone? And that's really how IOU Project came about, where I thought, no, it was sort of, My kicking back as a designer and going, no, this is not what I want to do. I really love what I do. I don't want it to be taken away from me. I want to fight for what I love and and, uh, thought about it and said, what could I do as an independent designer? How could I go back and engage the consumer again in this conversation that was about quality and not quantity, that was about value and not price? And this is back in the year 2010.
2: This is okay. So you know, this show is only thirty minutes. So this you're probably going to be my biggest challenge as a guest because there there's so much intricacy in this there business is, model. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and unpeel the onion um, in ways. And and so if you think that I've missed a layer or 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 something kind of monumental, then just jump in. But let's start with the textile. Let's start with madras. And for listeners who don't know what it is, can you explain it? And can you explain why that became one of the cornerstones of, of where you started?
3: Absolutely. So when I started the project, and because I wanted to rethink how we produced and how we we could, you know, in this new world that we were entering of technology, of this new, you know, type of consumer that wanted things immediate and that was also much more engaged, electronically speaking, online, how could we use all the positives of this Technology and do something about recuperating what I loved. So I started with Madras because whenever I have worked on an artisan project, uh, one of the things that always gets thrown at me is, oh, that's so sweet and cute, but it really isn't. Um, what attracted me about the Madras, one, it is one of the most ubiquitous uh, fabrics in the world. Most people know of it, heard of it, but no, don't know that it comes from a place called Madras, which was the Madras Presidency, the south of India, which is Tamil Nadu. And there's over 250,000 weavers that still hand and weave this fabric and that are part of a cooperative and still make a living out of this. So this was a huge opportunity to actually show a big, scalable project uh, that could actually address mass market. So that's what we did. We went to Madras. We spoke with the cooperative. We traveled there for over three months, meeting individual artisans to explain to them what we wanted to do, which was to put them online, connect them with the final consumer. Of course, part of the project was that we buy the fabric from Madras India from individual weavers and make the traceability platform, which means that everyone knows exactly who made that fabric, plus they also know who bought it. And then we bring the fabric back to Europe, produce in Europe, our shirts, our pants, our shoes, our extra drills in traditional artisan factories and put that online for the consumer. So the idea was to use the best of globalization. I always give it as an example. You know, Marco Polo, when he went to Italy, he probably took the best of it from Italy to China. He took the best of Italy to China and brought the best back. Now trade has become about finding the cheapest. So I wanted to turn that as well on its head and go back to what trade was about, which is to get the best of each side. And that's really how the project started with Madras being its cornerstone, because we felt we could truly address mass market as we had the capability
2: and how does a lay consumer like myself not even know that madras exists like if somebody's googling it right now they'll look at it and they'll be like oh i thought that was plaid like why why did how did the the name and the region and the history get lost so like what happened
3: but I think this is exactly one of the you know, paradoxes of is over-information, right? It's, it's exactly like many times I give the example of Kashmir right now. Everybody knows Kashmir, but people forget that's a denomination of origin. It was a place called Kashmir, which is now divided up into three different countries, and, and that's where this goat is from, and that's why it was called Kashmir. Um, in India, really, the word for Kashmir is Sashmina, which now actually means something else to most people. So that's how you realize how quickly you mm-hmm because of the way information is passed and it's not actually vetted, many a times false information gets accepted as truth or or people don't have time to actually look back and find it. So we're hoping that being as transparent as we're trying to be, which is really taking you back all the way to the source, we make once again the consumer curious for really where do things come from and why were they called in such a way and why are they specifically from that region and there's a reason for it. One of my biggest that, you know, right now, for example, I'm very involved in trying to make awareness about cashmere, because that has become a huge environmental crisis in the north of China, which is where they have taken the cashmere goat into these grasslands and multiplied them into industrial farming with them, which is why you can buy a cashmere sweater today at 49.99. dollars um, But the problem that has created is that this is a mountain goat that lives in the Himalayas, has very sharp roofs, and is digging up this entire grassland, and north of China, which is causing a, a huge problem. They can't even breathe in some areas because of the huge dust storms it has created. So sometimes in terms of fashion, just to satiate the immediate need of immediacy of having something, we don't see the impact that it causes. And hopefully, because of the way information can travel, we can actually fight that and go back and give the consumer the information and help them make uh, you know, intelligent choices.
2: You and I are on the same page. I have, there's several pages in my book about cashmere and about the kind of mastige, like creating something that should be a prestige um, textile and bringing it to the masses and what that's done for desertification in China and Mongolia and, and, and buying cheap cashmere has a global effect somewhere else that you can't see. So, um, we, okay, let's do another call because I don't want to, because you're not, are you bringing in cashmere Is cashmere part of the IOU project? Project?
3: Well, definitely, IOU Project really the idea with IOU. I didn't go out there. To be honest, to start a brand, I had already done that. I've done two brands and I've, you know, satisfied myself and my ego as designer to say, here it is, here's my vision of what fashion looks like, aesthetically speaking. IU was more of a philosophical standpoint for me at one point in my life where I thought everything that I have learned, everything that this wonderful world of fashion has given me and with my journey, this is my time to give back and and this was sort of my life project to, to create this platform, which would give information, correct information, people and not only people but designers as well. In fact with IOU one of the things we do is we invite designers to collaborate with us so that they can use our supply chain so called and, and turn it into theirs and, and hopefully we learn from them. So it really wanted to be a collaborative platform where other people can get information, use it and, and build together which is what I think is so so urgent in our world of fashion. Nobody owns really any artisan community or any idea right now. It's about sharing and hoping, uh, you know, improving each other and and getting to the end faster than we ever can because... We're in an urgent situation right now with all that's going on with global warming and with even the problems that are, you know, we're facing in terms of fashion being one of the largest polluters, next to one of the, you know, the petrol industry, which is dramatic.
2: Well, and it's true, and and I think that you are a bit of a visionary before your time because I, I keep coming back to the madras because that's actually the product that I that I see and I associate with yeah. the, with the label, and and so when I think fashion, I think okay, these beautiful madras you know, gorgeous um, shirt dresses and, and espadrilles and everything else. But but the, the next layer of the onion and kind of the secret sauce of really what you've created is this transparency tool that anybody can use. And, and when I say you're before your time, I really think that transparency has become such a buzzword in the last year and particularly in my mind in the last like six months where brands really now are trying to get a handle on what's going on in their supply chain. I don't know if you've heard about this, project that nest is doing with home workers um with target and ikea and and really trying and west elm is involved in really trying to help big brands look down their supply chain at individual artisans but you had already created that so can you talk about how a woman with your vast experience in design and and fashion created kind of ostensibly a tech
3: company Well, uh, I was lucky enough that I've actually done things, maybe the other way around, where actually I started working, my first job was at a sourcing company in in Hong Kong. So I actually participated in what I would call the deindustrialization of most of Europe, you know, where a lot of the companies actually moved eastwards and then we found factories and set, you know groups of uh, companies that would then set up production there. So I actually took part in that. And while I participated in that, I did realize what we were doing in the name of, um, you know, progress what we were actually doing was um, you know unfortunately uprooting people and traditions just in the name of quick returns because a lot of these people who moved to these big factories were actually artisans who had incredible skill sets which they had inherited over centuries and now they were just unlearning those skill sets and just learning to press a button on a machine and which eventually basically makes them very vulnerable to anything with the robotics or anything that has that would go faster than them which was Logic told me that machines would be faster anyway in a very short period of time. I'm also lucky that my husband comes from the tech industry. I'm not a huge... I'm fascinated by technology. It's something that I'm enamored with. I wouldn't say I have a total understanding of it because I'm an arts and crafts girl. But I do at home have this man who went to MIT, and he's very, very, you know, right now involved in, for example, artificial intelligence, machine learning. So I do get, you know, get to learn a little bit from my layman point of view. And I did realize that our industry was going to be affected dramatically because obviously we're very labor intensive and that would be a huge effect so for me how could we in some way mitigate that how could I get involved and do something about that to me uh, one of the things that was going to happen was hopefully, de- uh, you know, mass customization, was going, which was a trend that I could already see happening 10 to 15 years ago, would become a bigger deal, which means that maybe success would not look like selling a million of one product, but maybe selling millions of products to millions of people. So that allowed for the artisan to be involved. That allowed for technology was allowing for that to happen in many ways, right? That distribution of connecting one-to-one one and being able to sell one thing to one person and make that a multiple and make that a real business. Amazon built their business on that. So that was kind of exciting, and I wanted to get involved in that. And then, of course, the whole thing with the individual. I'm At the end of the day, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 17 years old, and I really do believe that the power that we have uh, we forget sometimes, as consumers, as individuals, as people who work. We somehow, it, it, and when you you know live in this world and you hear this conversation happening every day, and problems look so much bigger, you kind of end up thinking you really can't do much. But the truth is, we have all the power. And so, to me, it was if I could empower, we could some way empower each individual to understand how important it was that they played their. their you know, part in this process, if you could just empower the artisan, and we've seen that in you when we did the whole transparency, many times people told me, oh, it's not. you know, people don't care. But the truth is, it's not just about the consumer not caring, but it's a great story that I tell many times, and it, it makes me very proud, because I didn't imagine it would happen so quickly. Um, the third or the fourth shipment that was coming out of India, of the Madras, and we bring all our fabric through uh, boats because it's, it has this impact. Um, and it was late, and I called up to find out what was going on. So this is an area that generally tends to have hurricanes and cyclones. I thought there was something about that. So they told me, no, it was the weavers who were weaving a bit slower to make sure it was perfect, because they could see on the website that their face went next to the fabric. So here you are, this individual who has not been part of this global supply chain, has not been even visible so-day, has been making their little money, suddenly become extremely proud purely because they had authorship of what they were doing. So to me, that's a big empowering thing. And I think that really is the way to the future about how we can all make this better is having authorship. And technology allows you to do that now. So that's kind of what made us very excited. And we went down this crazy journey of building the platform because unfortunately we couldn't find anything that could give us the traceability that we wanted to give. And it was both ways. It was not only just to the consumer, but very importantly, back to the artisan. For us, it's really important. The artisan knows who bought their product, where it was sold, because it's really important that they understand how important it is, what they do, and what impact it has on the other side of the planet.
2: Okay, we need to take a quick break, so don't anybody go anywhere. We're going to come back, and Kavita is going to break down how this transparency works. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: This program is brought to you by Chef's Collaborative. A national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayliss and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org.
2: And we're back. You're listening to Kate Black, and this is Magnifico Radio. And today's guest is Kavita Parmar, one of the co-founders of the IOU Project. And so, Kavita, for the non-digital natives on the, in my audience, can you kind of give us a quick breakdown of how this transparency works? How do we know which madras came from which artisan? And then how can that? And then how does that get applied to kind of the bigger, more global marketplace?
3: Absolutely. So we basically, uh, if you think about the industrial world, it's fascinating. There's actually a lot of traceability built into the systems, but the truth is, it's built to actually punish. Right? When something goes wrong, they can trace it back to who did what wrong on which, um, which, uh, which place exactly. But we actually went back, and because the cooperative used the system to actually know which we were. We wove which fabric. We built that into our system. So we spent three months on the ground, in around the area of Kudilo or Madras, to learn exactly how they were interacting with each other, how the fabric, how the yarn was purchased, how the fabric went from one place to the other. And we, they themselves decided which were the 253 weavers out of the 250,000 that would first get onto our website. We documented each weaver. We actually trained each one of them to make sure that every single one would put their code, their unique code, onto the fabric, which then travels to Europe. And once that's in our warehouse in Europe, it gets put into our system, photographed and put into our system. And from there, it goes, travels to the atelier where the shirt or the pant or the jacket is made. And that too then gets exactly in the same way in the atelier we've had to undo certain systems of uh, supply chain in that in the last 20 years production was done in such a way that one person ends up just making a bucket hole so we went back to where an individual artisan was actually sewing the entire piece so they had full um, you know authorship of what they were doing and making it better and, and also working on how to make it fast but good, and that's what we did. So every single person involved in our supply chain has a unique code, and that code goes into the system at every point at which it's cut, sewn, and made. And then finally, when it's online, it's photographed, all that information is there. It goes out in the world to be sold, and once a customer buys it, just with that unique code. And right now we're using the QR because it's cheap to print, but tomorrow it could be virtual reality or any other way of interaction. But what's interesting is the database that we're building underneath of all this information.
2: And you decided to create it open source.
3: Absolutely. Because, um, well, well, again, thank you to Inigo, my husband, who's, um, who, who really is um, very visionary in that way. Because he said to me, you really want to build this so anybody and everybody can use it in the future. You want to build it big. So we've actually used it, built it, thinking of it as a Wikipedia of artisans in the future. This is just a one first tiny step that we're taking. And we're hoping over time more and more artisans come online and it has the ability to have millions of artisans be hosted on it
2: it's it's amazing and it's so kind of simple and so complex that it really it really is it really is kind of the epitome of of fashion right like it it just it's so beautiful in in what you've created so what does it need it needs more users it needs more big brands or more small brands like how do we get this Absolutely. this wiki how do we get it more ubiquitous
3: well actually sure I've been really lucky I'd be honest with you we've only been we started out journey in 2010. was self-funded, so it's always been. And I try to keep it that way because I remember listening to Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia, and he talked about why he didn't go the venture capital round, and he went, um, you know, the way he's done things, which is that he wanted to make sure it was free and, and able to. And I, when I wrote my business plan, I wrote a 100-year business plan. I did not write a three-year business plan because I think one of the biggest problems we have in the planet right now is everyone's short-term thinking. We need to think long-term. So we've been really lucky that up to now, we've been self-funded and financed purely by selling the product. We've been going back and producing and, and developing more. And, yes, the ideal situation is more and more people adapt it, and more and more people use it for their own businesses. And we're very open to that. In fact, right now, I'm working, I can't say it, but in less than a month, we're going to announce a partnership with one of the huge in, in corporation that is very old and that decided to help us and get involved in it. So we're very excited about that, besides which I've done consulting work with companies like Nike companies like Ikea which have been very interested in what we've done and have invited us on board to have conversations about how could they in fact you know think about this within their own companies so it's been quite exciting you know it's just been fine you know when you think about it's it been six years and we've come so far I mean I always tell the story you know when I started out 2010 and I built the first uh, photograph and it said who made my clothes Unfortunately, it took two more years, and, and 1,500 people had to die at the um, at Rana Plaza for that to become a big deal. But it has become a big deal. That's the exciting part. So it doesn't matter to me anymore about whether it's IOU projects. For me, it's about the ability to inspire change, that other people will look at this, get inspired by it, and hopefully or reach out to us for help or even just be inspired and build something of their own. I'm fine with that. The important thing is that change happens and that we help inspire it.
2: I love it. I, I can't actually, I'm not surprised because you are, you are so um, incredibly driven that you have a 100-year business plan, but I'm, I'm actually just very, I'm very kind of in awe of that. So um, I'm starting this, because it's my third season, I have three quick questions that I'm posing to everyone. So I wanted to know, if your life had a motto, what would it be?
3: Build to last.
2: Oh, I like that. I think so. And it's build, right? You want the verb "build" yes, to last. Build.
3: I'm a builder, so I would have to build to last. Yes. Okay.
2: Um, and the second question: Who or what inspires you?
3: I think people inspire me in general. Nature inspires me. I look at nature and I see how incredibly intelligent it is. About how it, how incredibly symbiotic it is. And I look at all of us and it inspires me to, as human beings, that's the ultimate, right? If we can build as nature, we can be... to me, that's the divinity of, of what we're doing here. To be able to build for others and to be able to build beyond ourselves, beyond our own little egos. So if I would have to pick something, it would be nature. But then there's a lot of other people who inspire me. Jimmy Wales inspires me. Elon Musk inspires me. Mahatma Gandhi inspires me. Lots of little. Even the lady who I just met in South India, who told me about her life and what she's done for you know uh, organic dying, inspires. So there's a lot of people who inspire me on a daily basis, but if I were to think of the big one, it would have to be nature.
2: I love it. Okay, and the third question, what's next on your bucket list? What are you working towards?
3: Well, my dream is to build a Wikipedia of artisans. So, so I'm hoping that this year, 2017, I actually kickstart that. I have a plan to, to actually make it open source We're going towards that. I've given myself six months to have it open, where other Artisan communities can actually approach us. We don't have... One of the things that is, makes it slow is that if we have to go there and we have to photograph... And But there's a lot of people doing amazing things around the planet, and we're trying to make the system so that anybody can use it and upload information. So we need a little bit of time on this. We've given ourselves six months, and we're hoping that happens by the end of the year. That's my big plan. And also to start um, on, the, on the design side, um, it is to come up with 100% organic, natural dyed black. I wear a lot of black and I just realized after a lot of study that black is actually very toxic as a color and the way it's made. So I'm obsessed with actually doing 100% natural organic black.
2: Have you been to Vietnam? No, I haven't.
3: Because I think in the north of Vietnam they
2: can do that.
3: Yes, and I just met with somebody in India who's actually doing some testing for us. Uh, So I'm I'm quite excited about that. I'm heard. And I want to make sure it's we can do it big scale and we can wash it in the washing machine so that it can be something that people can really wear on a day-to-day basis and not be something that's so complex that it just becomes something niche and really trying to work towards that. There's a few people, yes, there's some exciting things happening on that end.
2: I love it. And I love that you're always thinking about timeless because Madras is timeless, Black is timeless, you're giving the consumer this chance to really kind of invest in, in pieces that are timeless. So they can visit, they can support you as consumer citizens by coming to your atelier in Madrid. What's the address?
3: It's uh, in the Callejón of Corquequan, which is in the center of Madrid. Uh, we have a little, our little atelier shop there. Plus, of course, online at theiuproject.com. We've got store, a uh, physical store. And plus, even just reach out to us if you're doing a project anywhere. I do a lot of uh, communication, mentoring, working on projects. I do a lot of classes in different universities. I really do believe that we all need to work out a way to, Change things. And in any way, if they feel they can add or we can add to them, just please do reach out. I'm very easy to get to.
2: That's amazing. Kavita, thank you so much for joining me today. It's thank you, thank you to so talk much.
3: to you. Thank, you, thank to you so much for making me on and thank you for all you're doing. I know you also were also one of the pioneers when you started out on this journey and I remember, you know, meeting you many, many years ago, talking to you. So it's amazing how far you've gotten as well. So thank you so much for all the support. Aww. I
2: know how hard it is. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you to everybody for listening. I want to give a shout out to Heritage Radio Network. You can find and subscribe to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher and if you like what you hear kindly give us a review I would love to hear your thoughts and also a rating it helps us rank higher amongst conventional fashion podcasts and to push these conversations forward if you have a question or want to be a sponsor or recommend a guest you can always email me at radio at Magnifico M-A-G-N-I-F-E-C-O dot and you want to learn more about artists and fashion and alternatives to consumption plus hundreds of other stories visit magnifico.com. Until next week.
3: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org